This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Any job is best done with properly maintained equipment. Over the next year, likely half of your crop inputs are going to come out of the same sprayer and possibly the same nozzles. That's a lot of money and reliance on one machine. And now is a good time to make sure it is calibrated correctly. A properly calibrated sprayer not only ensures the correct amount of application, it ensures better weed control, but it can also save money as well. The first step in sprayer calibration is to fill the sprayer with clean water. You'll likely get some water on you in the process, so make sure the sprayer is clean. Check for leaks, working pressure gauges, and each nozzle is clean and working. Nozzle wear is hard to determine just by looking at it. If in doubt, you need to replace the nozzles. Flow rates increase with nozzle wear, so old nozzles are going to cost more in excessive applications. Step two is to make sure the ground speed is accurate to the tachometer. Run a distance at spraying speed and with a loaded sprayer and measure the time it takes and how far the sprayer went. Calculate it out to determine the ground speed. Don't forget that wheel slippage can read speeds faster than actual. Step three is to determine spray volume at specific operating pressure. The nozzle manufacturing information should have flow rates based upon operating pressures to determine ounces of flow per minute for that nozzle. Step four is where you likely get your pants a little wet. Use a graduated cylinder or a catchment pitcher made for calibrating sprayers to collect one minute's worth of spray at a constant pressure designed for that nozzle. Record sprayed amounts for each nozzle. Step five is to determine the spray rate that would be applied to each acre. There are some phone app calculators for sprayer calibration to help with the calculation. If flow rates are off, then pressures need to be adjusted, and then step four repeated to check for spray amounts. As a general rule, it takes 10% less pressure to reduce spray amounts by 5%. If the flow rates are too far off, or the spray nozzles are inconsistent, indicating uneven wearing, then it might be time to replace the nozzles. Even the more expensive ceramic nozzles are cheaper to replace than just a small over-application over thousands of acres. Nozzles can be cleaned, but they cannot be repaired. And remember that a number of phone apps can help with the calibrations. Planters are calibrated in much the same way, except that it's counting seeds rather than collecting water. Calibrated planters to ensure the proper distance between the seeds and the number of seeds per acre has a direct benefit to yields and will likely save on seed cost. If there are any questions over sprayer or planter mechanics, I'd be happy to help how I can, but honestly, with all the different types of equipment, it's probably better to call your equipment dealer. I can help with calculations though, and there are a number of publications and YouTube videos. Give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. This is Wendy Powell, your Wildcat Extension District Livestock Production Agent. Calf diarrhea, also called scours, is a very costly problem for many producers. Scours are only a symptom of underlying disease that plagues the animal. Dehydration and chemical imbalances are the actual causes of the animal's demise. Several pathogens can cause severe diarrhea. The impact of the germs is determined by the calf's age and the integrity of its immune system. If the calf didn't receive the proper amount of colostrum, 
it will be more vulnerable to the pathogens. The most common bacterial cause is E. coli. It typically affects calves from one to five days old, causing severe watery diarrhea that is generally yellow or white. Clostridium perfringens is another bacteria that can be highly fatal in young calves. It can come on suddenly and some calves will die without showing any symptoms at all. It usually is associated with an increased intake in the calf's diet. If management practices or the weather cause a long interval between meals and a calf consequently overconsumes, the proper environment has been established for the bacteria to grow. There are two viruses that cause scours, rotavirus and coronavirus. They both affect the small intestines. Symptoms include ongoing diarrhea that depletes the animal's nutrients. The coronavirus produces more severe symptoms, bloody stools and increased straining. Two types of protozoa can cause diarrhea in calves, but they have low mortality rates. Cryptosporidia leads to nutrient removal. Animals usually exhibit a good appetite, but still lose weight. Coccidiosis, however, is more stress-related, causing mild to severe bloody scours, decreased appetite, sluggishness, and dehydration. The key is to prevent the disease from occurring in the first place. A good producer should maximize colostrum transfer, increase sanitation, and reduce stressors such as overcrowding or poor nutrition, and vaccinate cows for E. coli, rotavirus, coronavirus, and C. perfringens at six and three days before calving. When dealing with an outbreak, good hygiene, dry conditions, and isolation of infected animals are advised. To address individual animals, correct fluid deficits first, then fix the electrolyte imbalances with powders. Young animals have little energy reserves, so provide an oral or IV fluid containing glucose or dextrose to supplement the energy. A broad-spectrum antibiotic can be used in some types of infections. Antibiotics only work against bacteria. If the infection is viral, antibiotics may prevent a secondary bacterial infection from occurring. It's important to consult with your veterinarian since they will know what diseases are prevalent in your area. For more information on this topic, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784. 5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K State Research and Extension report. If you are looking into what type of animals you could raise if you have a limited amount of acres, you may have considered raising rabbits, or more specifically, meat rabbits, as an option. Raising rabbits is fairly easy and the cost to start raising them is relatively low. If you are considering raising meat rabbits, you will first want to determine your goals. Will you be raising rabbits only for your family's consumption or do you also want to sell rabbits? How many rabbits will you be able to care for? And how many litters do you want to have a year? After you have determined the goals and answered these questions, and are ready to buy rabbits, you will need to know what characteristics determine a good rabbit and which breed of rabbit you will want to raise. 
There are three main characteristics to consider when determining if the rabbit has good conformation and will fit your needs. First, they need to grow quickly and efficiently. Second, they need to be good mothers. Third, and lastly, they need to have a good meat to bone ratio and grow to the ideal size. Typically, rabbits raised for meat should weigh between 9 and 12 pounds when grown. The two breeds most commonly raised for meat production are the Californian and the New Zealand White. However, there are many other breeds of rabbits that can be raised for meat as well. When figuring out what type of hutch to have for your rabbits, make sure you will be able to clean the hutch easily and that the hutch can be placed in an area where it will be out of direct sunlight in the summer to stay cooler, but also out of the direct wind to stay warmer during the winter. If you are building your own hutch, it is important to note that when constructing your growing cages, be sure the holes in the wire covering the floor are not too large, as the baby's rabbit's feet may fall through and become stuck or even broken if the holes in the wire are too large. The ideal wire to use would be half-inch mesh, 19-gauge galvanized hardware cloth. Once you have the type of rabbit you are going to raise and where you will house the rabbit figured out, the next step is to decide what you will feed your rabbits. Feeding rabbits can be very cost-effective or expensive depending on what you choose to feed your rabbits. In addition to feeding rabbits a commercial rabbit feed, you can also feed adult rabbits certain vegetables and fruit. Some fruit and vegetables you can feed adult rabbits include carrots, apples, beets, turnips, lettuce leaves, and potato peelings. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When people think of greenhouses, most people jump to traditional glass greenhouses, but they can be made of more than just glass. Greenhouses are just one form of protected environment agriculture, and chances are that some of you have kit greenhouses on your property. They can be great tools for extending the seasons in your garden, but there are some things to keep in mind when using them for your plants. The material your greenhouse is made of will impact which plants do best inside. The two most common materials are glass and polycarbonate. Glass allows more light into the greenhouse, but also leaches more heat in the cold and costs more to replace if it gets damaged. Poly is sturdier in the beginning than glass, but lets less light in thanks to its opacity and will degrade in sunlight over time and need replacing. Because most home greenhouse kits won't come with heaters, you need to pay special attention to the temperature inside your greenhouse. Be sure not to leave tropical and tender plants in the greenhouse over the winter or thirsty plants in the greenhouse over the summer. The temperature swings will make these plants suffer. Ventilation will be required in the summer to prevent heat buildup and plant scorching. Make use of the different environments created by vertical space. Hot air rises and cool air falls, so around this time of year, more tender plants will do better elevated within your greenhouse, while plants that you want to harden off to cold will do better near the floor of the greenhouse. In the summer, plants adapted to more sun and higher heat should be placed near the top of the greenhouse. Cold frames are one type of greenhouse that are miniature and oftentimes DIY. 
Cold frames consist of nothing more than a wooden frame no more than one foot tall and a glass lid. In DIY cold frame projects, reclaimed windows are often used as the lid, but any lid that allows sunlight through will work. It is not required in the design of a cold frame, but most cold frame lids will be hinged to the back of the frame and sloped to the south in order to allow more sunlight in during the winter and allow for water runoff during rain. These structures do not change the microclimate substantially, providing just a few extra degrees of warmth and protection from wind. However, this is often enough to extend the growing season earlier in the spring and later in the autumn. With right plant selection, you can even grow plants in cold frames into the winter. However, a cold frame's primary purpose is for hardening off seedlings by exposing them to colder temperatures without potentially killing them. Keep in mind that just like with more traditional greenhouses, cold frames will also need occasional ventilation to prevent heat damage, especially since seedlings are more vulnerable to extreme environmental conditions than mature plants of the same species. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Horde Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.